0: When we started work on this series, my dad was telling me, "Hey, we're going to do this series. It's going to be on character," and he said, "You're going to cover a couple of weeks." And we started talking about what topics were important and what we wanted to try to make sure we addressed. And I said, "You know what's interesting to me about... Whoops, stay. There we go." So, you know what's interesting to me about character is in my work as a couples coach, um, which I've done now for about six years. I said. I kind of look for three character qualities from the people that come in during our first session. I usually do a two-hour with couples when they first come to see me, and I'm really interested in three things, and I'm looking in both people to see if they have these. If both people have these three qualities, I find that their rate of recovery and their rate of moving past whatever they're dealing with is very fast, and usually they make a big recovery and they end up with a better relationship than what they started with but if these things are missing uh, with either one it makes it extra complicated and it really slows things down and those three things are this it's humility responsibility and resilience uh, and those are things that I'm constantly looking for. And dad said, well, you can't have humility. That's mine. I'm covering that first week. It's not, it's not up for grabs. He said, but you can deal with responsibility and resilience. And he said, I think I'd like you to finish out the whole series on resilience. And I told him, I think that's fantastic because this may be the number one character quality that, has, that, that determines the end product of your life. Uh, And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and and it is something that I personally struggle with. So this has been a great journey for me this week, looking into this topic, because this is something I deal with. And every time I think about the struggle to be resilient, my mind goes back to something, uh, a story I heard in college uh, about a baseball player named Harry Heitman. I don't know if anybody in this room is familiar with Harry Heitman, if if you're a hardcore baseball fan. But he did set a record uh, uh, when when he played major league ball. Uh, He was with the Brooklyn uh, Dodgers at that point, the Brooklyn Robins in 1918. That's a long time ago. They 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 brought him into the Brooklyn ball club and they farmed him out to the minors. I, I don't know a whole lot about baseball, but this much I do know. I know that the major leagues will farm you out to the minors for a while, let you hone your skills, let you develop as a player, and they'll see how you do. And if you do well enough, then you know you might be fortunate enough to get called up to the majors. And so Harry Heitman had played for a year, Just, just, he was a kid, played one year with this minor league ball team, but he had a really, really good first year. Now I'm not a a baseball person, I wish I was, I wish I was really good at sports, but I'm not, Uh, so I don't know a whole lot about sports statistics, but people tell me this is pretty good. His first year out in the minor leagues, he had an ERA of 1.32, and I'm told that's relatively good. And then he his his team went 17 and 6 his first year and pretty much the papers and everybody around was saying the whole reason that the team's been winning lately is because of this kid. He's really really good. He's a great pitcher. And so it was 1918, World War I was still going and, and there was still a lot of fighting to do. And so a lot of talented uh, um, baseball players were putting, putting a pause on their career and signing up and joining the military, and that's what Harry Heitman did. He, he went up and joined the, the Navy. And there was a little window of time before he had to show up uh, to, to, to start his, his service to the country. And uh, so uh, President Ebbets decided, you know, we were gonna call him up to the majors at, at some point anyway and, and, you know, the kid's going to be gone in a, in, in a couple weeks. Let's just go ahead and call him up to the majors for one game. We got this doubleheader coming up. You know, we're going to wear out our main pitcher anyway. Let's go, ahead and, let's go ahead and call this kid up and give him a chance to pitch in, in this game. And so there's this blurb. I went through the New York Times archives this week, looking for any information I could find on this, and I found this little 10-line blurb in the New York Times, and this is what it says. Uh, President Charles Ebbets of the Brooklyn Baseball Club yesterday announced that Heitman will pitch one of the two games to be played with the Pirates tomorrow. He is a recruit who had been farmed out to Rochester, and uh, President Ebbets stated that he had recalled Heitman from Rochester after learning that the youngster had joined the Navy last Monday, right? Now, this is all blown up big. We're talking about little teeny-tiny Blurb in the New York Times, but if you're Harry Heitman, I'm assuming that you're buying several copies of the Times. You're clipping this out. You're giving it to your mom, to your friends, anybody that you can. I'm finally getting to play major league ball. I was born for this. I'm good at it. I've worked hard. I've paid my dues. I've been in. I've been in the minors for a long time, but i I've, 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 I've outgrown the minors. It's time to let me play on a major league field, and finally, I am getting my chance. I'm going to have this great debut. I'm going to play a fantastic game. I'm going to go serve the nation and when I come back, I'm going to be a full-fledged Brooklyn Dodger, and that's going to be my career. Only problem was, it didn't go so well. Heitman didn't set a record for being an amazing baseball player. Heitman set a record for being, having the shortest Major League ball career of any player. Not, he didn't hold it for super long. A few decades later, he, he was replaced. But Heitman only um, pitched against four batters, and he didn't get any of them out. And the, if you read one of the newspaper accounts, one of the guys who hit one of his first pitches was, was considered safe when he should have been considered out. And it just, the, the, the newspaper article said he just deflated. The, the article said you could just see he lost all of his steam and then everybody that he went up after that he couldn't do anything with and there were boos and jeers and people didn't want him on the field and he and he he, he got off the pitcher's mound and he went and gathered his belongings and he went to the showers and he left the ballpark and he didn't didn't show up again. He went started his service with the Navy, but you know, you know you're you're World history, 1918, the, the, the struggle was almost over. He, he was with the Navy for less than a year. Now, here's what's interesting. I never knew this about this story before, um, but as I was searching the, 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 the newspaper archives, I found an article that says that Heitman, in 1919, after he finished his Navy service, had been signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers to play Major League ball. So the Dodgers came back to him and said, Yeah, you had, a fir- you had a rough first time out, but we still want you to play ball. They signed him, right? But he never showed up to training camp. He just didn't show. And a couple months later, he's playing minor league ball again. Played minor league ball for the rest of his career. Most of it, he didn't pitch. He was done pitching. He, he started batting, playing outfield positions. By the way, he ended his career with a pretty decent batting average, 292, pretty respectable. He was a good ball player. He was a good all-around ball player. He might have had a major league career. Who knows? I mean, after all, how many of us have seen people make the majors and really have to develop when they were there? He He might have had a really great major league career. But for some reason, when it came time for training camp, even though he'd been signed, even though he'd been asked, he just didn't show up. Well that's interesting to me because as a person who my job is is to try to look at how God wants us to to live our lives so that I can teach here and then my job is to sit across from couples who are distressed most of the week that's what I do I sit across from married couples who are distressed and I try my best to help them begin to see where they can make some forward movement. And so I'm interested when I read a story like this because I wonder how does a major league talent get stuck on a minor league ball field, right? Because I talk to couples who tell me all these wonderful things that they've got going on. They tell me the years they've invested, the the great kids that they have, all these wonderful things that they have. And they, they tell me about these strengths in their relationship. And it's clear to me there is all the potential in the world for a major league marriage. And yet they're stuck on a minor league ball field. Or I'll get a call from a pastor at another church who will have had a setback something happened somebody got mad at something that he did maybe there's a little bit of discord in the church something happens he's really dealing with some tension there and he says you know what i just don't think i'm really called to be a pastor i think it's time for me to step aside and do something else you know i don't know if you know this but the 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 quitting rate for pastors is quite high and so well, i i just need to go do something else and i think this This person, not of their own strength, but given what God is doing through them, this person is a major league talent, and yet somehow they're thinking that it's time for them to go to a minor league field, and if they do, they're going to get stuck there. And so what I want to do is just talk with you this morning about how to make the most of your potential. Whatever you have in your person that is major league, how to not let it get stuck on a minor league ball field. And by the way, as I said, this is something that I, I struggle with. This is, the, as I said, the topic is resilience. And, and I struggle with resilience because when I face tension, when I face challenges, it's, it's a little bit of a, of a problem for me. And the reason is because I've bought into something that I like to call the fairy tale view of success. Let me, let me show you what the fairy tale view of success is. We all have talent or skills, right? This is not anything unique to any one of us. We all have different talents and skills. Talent is what God gave you. Skill is what you've worked for, right? Um, of course, God gave you the ability to work for it, but we'll just say that's the difference. Skill is something that you've honed. Talent is something that you came into this world with. And then we, th- we say to ourselves, if I ever get an opportunity to exercise my talent and skill, I will have big success. That's the fairy tale view. My mother, thinks I am the greatest singer in the world. If I ever get on American Idol, I will get a recording contract. That's the fairytale view of success. But most of us have been around the block a few times, and we know that it actually looks this way. We've got talent and skill, eventually we'll get an opportunity but once we get that opportunity and we try to exercise it, we will encounter a setback. I don't know if I can get a witness in this room to this, but I'm telling you, this is the way the real world works. You, get, you have talent, you have opportunity, and you're going to hit a setback. But it's not just this. Let's talk about how it really works. Let's get gut-level honest here. This is how it really works. You got talent, skill, you get an opportunity, and then you hit a setback, and another setback, and another setback, and then you hit a big setback. And then eventually you get the big success. So let's, let's workshop this here for a second. Because if this is true, then it means that we're going to have to figure out what to do with the setbacks that we experience in our lives if we ever want to have big success. And I don't know if anybody else in this room is is with me on this, but I want to have big success. I don't want to have it for my sake, I just figure God gave me talents and abilities and he didn't give them to me because he wanted me to sit on them. God is not into redundancy, he wants me to do something with it, right? So I want to have big success, and a lot of that's gonna have to do with how we handle setbacks. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, is it normal? to have a setback. If you're doing the right thing, and you're trying really hard, and you hit a boundary, or you hit a barrier, or you hit a speed bump, I don't know if you're like me, usually when I hit that, what seems like an insurmountable barrier, I go, whoa, I must be doing something wrong, right? I must have, I must have made a mistake. If I'm, if I'm getting into a, a situation where I'm trying to lead out on something, you know, I've been in ministry now for almost 10 years, I'm trying to lead out on something, and all of a sudden there's some tension, there's some pushback, there's somebody who feels like I'm doing the wrong thing. I tend to be the person who goes, whoa, wait a minute, maybe this means that I'm, maybe this means I'm making a mistake here. But let's think about this. Why do we hit setbacks anyway? Well, it's because we're trying to do something new or we're trying to do something better. Because anytime we try to do something new or we try to do something better, we risk having a setback, Right? And that's a good thing. I want you to look at this statement and see if you don't agree with me on this. But this is what I believe. If we are fully capable of meeting our goals by doing what we are already doing, we're not setting goals. We're just wishing for the status quo. True? If, if, if I can do everything that I'm reaching for by just going on doing what I'm already doing, then I'm gonna keep getting what I'm already getting. Right, that's not a goal. That's just keeping on drifting. It's just keeping on floating, right? So what that means is that our effectiveness in life does not hinge on our level of talent or on our number of opportunities, but on how we respond to setbacks. Setbacks are normal. It's because you're doing something new or you're trying to do something better. You're gonna hit some setbacks, probably gonna hit several of them. And so the question is, how do we respond to setbacks? The Brooklyn Dodgers wanted Heitman to play some more but he just wouldn't show up to training camp. So let's workshop this a little bit. And, and, and by the way, I just wanna be really honest with you because that's my, that's my promise to you is I'll always tell you where I struggle. And this is an area where I struggle. And I became extra aware of it. The other day, my wife and I were going on a road trip and we didn't want to take either of our cars. We rented a car and uh, I, I got in the car, I was getting ready to bring it home so we could go, go take the trip. And the radio station, you know how now the radios tell you what station is on. They're, you know, I turn on the key and the radio, the radio station says oldies. Now, no offense to people here who love the Beach Boys, I just can't get into it, it's not my gig. And so I'm getting ready to turn the dial and a 90s song comes on. And I think, uh-oh, this can't be good, you know? I mean, and I was listening to this song when I was 17, you know, there's a problem. And I realized, I'm an oldie, you know? I mean, I'm not old, but I have now gotten to the age of my life where styles that were in vogue when I was a kid are coming back around, and that's not cool, you know? The 80s are already back, and if the 90s come back, I don't know what I'm going to do. But I do, I, you know, I remember the, the, the neon windbreakers and the guest jeans and the MC Hammer pants. I remember when pagers were cool. My kids don't know any of that, you know. And I sat there as a student of psychology and sociology and thought to myself, Jonathan, you need to think here, you need to think because sociologists tell us that, you know, when we're in our 20s and we recognize that we struggle with something, we kind of give ourselves some latitude because we think, hey, I got a lot of life to live and I'm just figuring it out still. You know, when our late, 10s, late teens, early 20s, we're thinking, I'm just figuring it out and I'm kind of working into the groove that I'm going to find. But by the time you get to about my age and you're about 35, you start to realize that you have worked your way into the grooves And that unless you consciously work to change something, if there's something that you don't like, unless you consciously work to change it, it's probably gonna keep on in that path. And so I thought to myself as I prepared for this week, I said, i got to get this. i got to figure this out. So this is the workshop that God put me through this week, and I hope it's helpful for you. I want to take you to the story of a man named Moses in the Old Testament. If you've got your Bible or your electronic reading device, we're going to start in Exodus 2. And then we're just going to kind of trace on down through the next few chapters in Exodus. If you know the story of Moses, I'm not going to dwell a whole lot on on the, the narrative here. But you know Moses was a very special baby. Last a couple weeks ago, we talked about Joseph and how his brothers sold him into Egypt, and then later on, Joseph would bring his brothers into Egypt, and they were very much in the in the favor of the Pharaoh. And uh, they had, you know, Joseph and his brothers had kids, and then their kids had kids, and and you know, as the generations passed, eventually there were more Hebrews than there were Egyptians, and the Egyptians didn't much like that because they started worrying that maybe they would take over. And then eventually, a Pharaoh comes on the throne who had never met Joseph, who did not care at all anything about Joseph or or the history there. And uh, he enslaved the Hebrews. He thought the easiest way to make sure they don't take over is for us to assert our authority. And they enslaved the Hebrews and they treated them terribly. They, they beat them. Uh, they dominated them. They expected more work from them than a human being could possibly do. And when they weren't able to do the amount of work a human being uh, can do, then they, they would just beat them more. It was, it was a bad deal. And uh, so, but the Pharaoh was concerned because the Bible says he thought that by treating them harshly, they, they would begin to dwindle. Their numbers would begin to dwindle, but God allowed them to multiply even more the harsher the Pharaoh got. And so the Pharaoh called in the midwives uh, and said, listen, if you're delivering a Hebrew baby, I want you to kill it. And uh, they, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't follow the orders. And so the Pharaoh then sent out a, an order to everybody and said if you, if you know of a Hebrew baby boy anywhere, you take that Hebrew baby boy and you throw it in the Nile or you're gonna be in trouble, right? And so now it was a big deal because if your neighbor was an Egyptian but you were a Hebrew and you had a baby boy, you could try to protect that little kid for a little while but eventually somebody's gonna find out and they don't wanna be in trouble with the Pharaoh so it was a very, very bad time. And if you know the story, Moses is born during the middle of this time and Moses' mom knows that if, if she doesn't put her son in the Nile, Somebody else is going to, but she decides to be creative about how she does it, right? So she takes a basket, and she puts tar inside of it to waterproof it, and she, she lays her baby down in that basket very gently, and she puts him on the shallow end of the Nile and tells Um, his sister to babysit. Make sure you watch him and make sure he's okay. So she did exactly what Pharaoh said. Nobody's gonna do it for her. She's following the order, but she's doing it in such a way that that Moses is gonna float. Now, this is not my sermon, and I don't even have time to go there, because I went to overtime last night, but I just wanna tell you, I have some parents coming up to me lately, very concerned about the direction of our country, very concerned about the environment that our kids are, are gonna be in, and I just wanna tell you, we could all take a lesson from Moses' mom, because we can't change the world, but we can try to make our kids float right? In a generation where most kids are going to sink, we can do anything that we can figure out how to do to try to make sure that even though we have to work within a system, we can try to make our kids float, but that's a sermon for another day. Um, so Moses ends up in this basket sort of floating out to where the daughter of the Pharaoh was taking a bath in the Nile, and she just is, is taken with this little baby boy, and she decides that she, she wants to, to adopt Moses is her son right there on the spot. She, she's not afraid of her dad. You know. She says, I'm, I, want, I, want this, I want this kid. And, 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 and so she, she adopts Moses. Moses grows up in the, in the palace of the Pharaoh. He, he's trained with the best education you can possibly get in the world at the time. He has power and authority. I mean, he is a Hebrew, so I'm assuming at dinner time when Pharaoh's at the, top, at the head of the table, it made for some awkward dinner conversation. But in general, he has an incredible privilege. Now think about this. God's people are being terribly mistreated. And yet Moses is a plant in Pharaoh's house. God has positioned Moses in a way that no one else is positioned. He has a unique place. He has unique training, unique education, unique power and authority. He has been training to be a leader since the day he was one year old. And I'm just saying that it did not, it did not miss Moses' thoughts that he had a talent and a skill and he'd been given a calling and an opportunity to do something for his people. And at 40... He decides to go out and check on his people. This is in Exodus chapter two, verse 11. The Bible says, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again. Now, this is very important, and a lot of us have not really looked at this in this story. This was almost a, a first time for me seeing this. Keep in mind, Moses is sauntering out to go visit his people like nothing is wrong. He killed the Egyptian yesterday. Today, he's going out to visit his people. He's assuming everything's cool, right? He goes out, and, he's, and, and, and when Moses went out to visit his people, he saw two Hebrew men fighting, and he said, why are you beating up your friend? Uh, the man replied, well, who appointed you to be our prince and our judge? Are you gonna kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses was afraid, thinking everybody knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. Okay, so this is so important. Moses thought that killing this Egyptian was going to initiate him as the leader of his people to rescue them. He thought they would see what he was trying to do. He he thought they would see that he was trying to play the role of a rescuer, and they would immediately get this amazing loyalty to him. And now he would start to negotiate the settlement that would allow his people to be Uh, uh, better off, whatever that would be. I don't know what Moses was thinking at the time he was going to try to do, but I know this was his thought, because look at this in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, uh, where Stephen, the deacon, was preaching to a group of unbelievers, and he said, Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. That is the language of a setback. Thought our marriage was going to work out, but it didn't. Thought there was going to be money left over in the bank account, but there wasn't. Thought I was going to get admitted to that graduate program, but I didn't. I thought I was going to do better at not yelling at my kids today, but I didn't. That's the language of a setback. They didn't, they didn't recognize him. And that's why he says now everyone knows, because he thought there was going to be this incredible loyalty towards him, and there wasn't. And he realized somebody has already gone and talked to the Pharaoh about this. And that's why he had to run away. The Bible says he went to Midian. He retreated to Midian. Now, there's two options that we can choose when we face a setback. And Moses chose the one that is most common for people like me who struggle with resilience. And that is this. When you face a setback, you retreat and try something else. You pull back, you pull away from the tension because that's what a setback is. A setback is unwanted tension, right? It would be nice if things were easy. It would be nice if you could just slide into an opportunity. It would be nice if things would just go, you know, no struggles, no hassles, no problems. I've got this opportunity and I'm just gonna ease right into it. But we don't ease, there's tension and you have to shoulder into an opportunity, right? But sometimes when we shoulder into the opportunity and we get pushed back, what we do is we pull away and we isolate ourselves from that opportunity. And by the way, some of you know that some people do this relationally, right? So you know somebody in your life that once they face a setback, they go offline and you can't talk to them, you can't converse with them, they have no interest in connecting with you, they're not relational at that moment, why? Because it is is second nature if we struggle with resilience to isolate ourselves when we face a setback. And that's exactly what, what Moses did. And by the way, the name Midian. Moses went to Midian. The name Midian means quarrel. It means argument. It means uh, fight, right? And it's so apt because here's what here's what happens when you retreat from an opportunity. Or and by the way, since we're since we're God followers, let's let's just let's just substitute the right term for opportunity. Instead of calling an opportunity, let's call it a calling because that's what it is. Whenever you're in the minors and you're working and you're developing skills and God gives you an opportunity to go up to the majors, that is a calling. God is giving a calling to you. It's placing that on your life. And so whenever there is a calling and yet we retreat from that calling, there will always be an internal battle playing out inside our lives between our God-given potential and our fear of failure. And we, we, we have this internal turmoil going on. And for Moses, it lasted for 40 years. He stayed in Midian for 40 years. He set up camp. He, had a, he, he, he started a family. He basically set up his life and, and ended up, you know, at 80, about ready to retire. But that's when God shows up. And, and some of us could testify this morning to the fact that even when we retreat, God is tenacious about our calling. If God places a calling on your life and a skill and an ability, he's not gonna just let that sit on the back burner forever. Someday he's going to come find you and he's gonna tell you, it's time for us to do some business. It's time for you to put those skills to to, to work. It's time for you to shoulder into it and we're gonna do it this time for real we're gonna do it together. And that's what we see in Exodus chapter three. Look at this with me. The angel of uh, of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement, because though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. Well, this is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. I mean, also, they're in the middle of the desert, so I would also think it'd be interesting to know why is it on fire in the first place. But um, in any case, and so when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, someone speaking to you from out of the middle of a bush that's on fire and not burning up, that was a new experience for Moses, right? That's not something that you experience every day. So he says, here I am. And God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. And we'll come back to that in a minute. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So God has adequately identified himself at this point. And he says, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. And I am aware of their suffering. Man, that's a message all in of itself. You know, when you're in the middle of suffering, you know that God sees what you're going through. He hears what you want to tell him and what you're, what you're experiencing, and he's aware of what people are doing to you. And God said, I'm not okay with it, and it's time to do something about it. So he says, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. So go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of, out of Egypt. So think about this. This is what Moses wanted to do in the first place, right? Isn't this why he got involved when there was an altercation between one of his people and an Egyptian? This is what he wanted to do. This is what he felt in his heart his calling was. And if you're in this room and you have a calling on your life and you're aware of it, you know it stays with you. It's not like something that you can just withdraw from and turn the light switch off. It will stay with you. And so he knows it. He knows this is his calling. Now the God of the universe has shown up to him and said, I want you to do this and I'm gonna be with you, at that point, the answer is yes, but Moses doesn't say yes. Look at what Moses says. I'm just gonna rapid fire through these. Uh, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're gonna ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? I'm not very good with words and I never have been and I'm not now I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. I love this, right? Because he's saying, I just, I didn't know. I've never walked up to a burning bush before, and I've never had a direct conversation with God before. So I kind of thought maybe, you know, I'd start talking better, because this is definitely a big thing to me. I I wish I could talk better. So I figured maybe when I walked up here, you'd sort of wave a magic wand over me and I'd start talking better. But I have noticed, God, that as we've been talking, as we've been dialoguing, I'm still talking the same old way that I always have talked. So I just don't think you get it, God. I'm not good for this. He says, I get tongue-tied and my words get tense. And then he says this, Lord, please send anyone else. I find it significant that he didn't say send someone else. He said send anyone else. That is the verbiage of full on retreat. He's saying, I don't care who, God, you know, just pick somebody at random. Anybody at random would be better than me is what he's saying. That's what retreat looks like. And I identify, because this is what I do when I have a fear of a setback. I give God all the reasons why I shouldn't be in a place to do what he's asking me to do. But let's just be fair. Whenever God calls one of his children to something, it is always a can thing. God never calls one of his children to something he will not equip them to do. So whenever God calls them, it is always a can thing. So why do we always come back with can't Answers are so frequently come back with can't answers. Well, there's a good reason, and I have very little time to walk through this with you, um, but there is a theory in psychology, and... and, and Y'all know, anybody who knows me really well knows that I'm a psychology research geek. Like that's what I love. I'm always into it because I always feel that, that research done right will vindicate the Bible. And what I love is being able to have chats with my non-believer psychology friends and show them in scriptures that God told us a long time ago what research is just now finding out. That's really cool. But there's a theory in psychology, it's a very long-standing basic theory. So if you if you were a first semester psych student in college, you heard of this. It's called learned helplessness. And learned helplessness just basically means that a person or an animal has come to the point that they believe that no matter what they do, they have no control over the outcome of a situation. It does not matter if they try to do if they if they try to do what they believe is the right thing or or they don't, doesn't matter, it's going to probably not end well and regardless they don't have any control over it anyway. And this is what happens to us. This is why we retreat. As we get to a point, why why would a person retreat and pull away from the tension? It's because we believe that nothing that we do at this point is going to change anything. And psychologists tell us there's three basic reasons or three basic things that that are present Life patterns that are present when we get into this learned helplessness place. You're going to see all three of these with Moses. And if you're in this room and you have a PhD in psychology, some of you do, and I know who many of you are, please bear with me. I know I tweaked this a little, right? So I, I tried to stay as close as I could to the original, but I, didn't. I did tweak it just a bit. But here are the three things that you're going to see if you're taking notes. Here's the first thing. The first thing is we get down on ourselves. So we experience a setback, and instead of looking at that setback in context and saying, okay, this was one situation, this was one instance, um, this is maybe, even if it's something that we do that we feel like we did wrong, instead of saying, you know, I need to maybe work on this, this is something that I, this was, this was a behavior that I want to I learn how to do better in. Instead, we get down on ourselves and we begin to turn the angst and the anger and the anxiety of failure inward. And we start saying things to ourselves like, I'm just so fill in the blank dropped the groceries on the way in the house. I'm just so clumsy. I uh, there wasn't enough money in the bank account at the end of the month. I'm just such a bad financial manager. I, I you know, I, I didn't handle that situation well at work and I lost my temper. I'm just such a hothead. I you know, I'm so I don't know if you see what I'm what I'm saying, but it's like we we begin to label ourselves we we were criticizing ourselves a, a definition for criticism is any statement that labels something as completely defective in some way right so I, I spend my, my life talking to couples about this because c- couples often criticize each other. So we, we'll make a statement about the other person, not about their behavior, but we'll make a statement about how they are. You're a jerk, you're a drama queen. And one of the things that I, I teach couples is that criticism is like putting a, a, a label on someone's soul. It's not saying you did this and this bothered me, it's saying you, are this way. Somehow interwoven into the DNA of who you are is this problem. And But it's even worse when we criticize ourselves and we convince ourselves that woven into the DNA of who we are as a person is this fault, is this problem. Because if you fully convince yourself that that's true, you'll never work on it. You'll never work on it because you'll be convinced there's nothing you can do about it. If it's really, truly part of who you are, what can you do? This is exactly what Moses does. Look at this, Exodus 4, verse 10. I'm not good with words. I never have been. And I'm not now, even though you've spoken to me. What is he saying? I've never been good with words. I'm not good with words now. I'm always not gonna be good with words. Look at this, Exodus chapter 6, verse 30. He says, I'm such a clumsy speaker. He says, that's just how I am. That's just how I am. So God, when, when you reach into your box of tools, to do a job, just push me over to the side of the tools that you don't use very much and use something a little brighter and shinier because I can't speak well. It's just how I am. I'm just such a clumsy speaker. Here's the second thing we do. We catastrophize. So we've got a circumstance or a problem or an issue that we bump into. It's a setback, but it becomes a mountain. And we think, I cannot get around this, I can't get over it, I can't get under it, it's just time to walk away, there's just too much here to try to overcome, and we start to say things to ourselves like, this must mean, right? so you got a high school student, senior, gets a C on an exam and says, this must mean I'll never get into college or a person who has a, a, a boss who coaches them. So you get called in and you think, I've never been written up. I've never been coached. This has never happened to me before, but it happened to me today. This must mean I'm gonna lose my job. This must mean I'm never gonna be a success in my career. And this is what we do. We turn, we turn a setback into a catastrophe. It's a huge thing, and look at what Moses did. In, in Acts chapter seven, the Bible tells us um, that uh, that Moses believed that God had sent him, but then we go back to Exodus chapter four, where Moses is talking to God, and he says, what if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? He's saying, look, I have had this before. I tried to be a leader, God. I don't know if you recall this or not, but I tried to step out and do what you have invited me to do, and they didn't believe that I was the guy to lead them. Why would they believe that I'm the guy to lead them now? What he's saying is, I went up against it. It was a mountain. I walked away from it, and I know the mountain's still there, and God, I just... I just don't want to even go there. I just don't want to go there. Here's the last one. The last one is we forfeit new opportunities, right? There's a difference between a loss and a forfeit. A loss is when you show up and you play the game, but the other team outplays you. A forfeit is when you never show up in the first place. See, we'll never know what kind of a major league baseball career Harry Heitman could have had because he just didn't show up. That's forfeiting new opportunities. And here's what that sounds like when we talk to ourselves, we just say, there's no point. Marriage counseling, it's too late for that. too too, Too much water under the bridge, too many issues, too many problems. Guys, I'm especially talking to you because guys are usually the ones saying, I don't wanna to go to marriage counseling. And we say, it's just too messed up, it's too big, it's too bad, there's just no point. Or, or you say, Dave Ramsey, are you kidding me? I'm not gonna go to Dave Ramsey classes. You don't understand how big and bad our financial mess is. It's just too much. We've tried before. It's probably who we are as people anyway. We're probably just bad with finances. It's probably in our DNA. And in the end, this much we've learned, there's probably just no point. Well how does a person get to this place? There's no point. Let me, show you, let me show you how this happens. So you get a setback and you retreat and try something else. Now this is key and I don't know how to say this. I've tried a couple different services and I'm not sure I've said this right. But keep in mind, this breaks the sequence. The moment we retreat and try something else, this is just one of several opportunities that have been stopped halfway. So look at what happens. Eventually our life looks like this, right? We had a setback, so we retreated and tried something else. And then we had another setback, and we did that again. And we have another setback, and we tried it again. And we have a life that looks like a bunch of half-opened opportunities. So we still have the gym membership. We're still paying the bill. But we haven't gone for a couple months. We have a shelf full of self-help books, and they're all dog-eared at page 20 because we don't usually ever get much past that. And we, we try things, and, and, but when we hit a setback, we stop. And then we try something else, and we hit a setback, and we stop. And we try something else, and we hit a setback, and we stop. And eventually we go, I've been doing this a lot, and I'm getting tired, and there's been a lot of stuff that I've been through. And you know what? At this point, I think it's just better to say there's just no point. So what's the alternative? I told you there's two ways of handling a setback. Here's, here's the other one. And it's a mess, but this is what it really looks like. You hit a setback, you regroup and try again. And you hit another setback and you regroup and you try again. And then you hit another setback and you regroup. Another setback and you regroup. And then eventually you get to big success. Now here's what I want you to see. This is the only way you will ever be able to draw a straight line between the talent and the skill that God has placed in your life and the big success that God designed you for we all have to make up our mind at some point, what what would we rather do? Would we rather have a bunch of half-opened opportunities in our life, or would we want to get to the place at some point where we say, I'm going to be tenacious, and eventually I'm going to be able to draw a straight line from the talent and the abilities that only I know God has placed in my life, and the big success that I believe he planned for me? How does God answer Moses, because God is going to try to help Moses get away from his learned helplessness. He gives him five words, and this is in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. God answered, I will be with you. Now, why is that important? Well, the, the psychology and sociology communities, they got a little bit of a problem on their hands lately. This is, this is something that's been a couple decades now, but it's become even more researched over the last couple decades, and that is that we know now from research that people who are pessimistic and even slightly depressed have a more realistic view of how much control they have over their life than people who are optimistic. Optimistic this is a statistic, so there are exceptions, but in general, people who are pessimistic or a little bit depressed, if they have no control over a situation, they judge that correctly. Put an optimist in a situation that you you set up in the lab where they have no control, and they still think they do, right? And so now, now the psychology world's a little stuck because it seems like you get two choices. Either it's depression or denial, one of the two, you know? You get to pick which one, and here's what I say. There is depression, there is denial and then there's faith. See, God designed us to interface with transcendence. God designed us to get help from something that is bigger than us. God designed us to reach for help, not to look inside for it, but to reach for it. Look at what the Bible says in Psalms, because the Bible's gonna tell us where our help comes from. Look at this, the psalmist says in Psalm 121, I look up to the mountains, does my help come from there? Now this is important, because the psalm was written while God's people were climbing a hill. And what he's saying is, I'm looking to the hill, does that is that where my help comes from? So inherent in that statement, one is, it doesn't come from me. We don't look, from so, we don't look for something we already have inside. So, so I'm looking for help. And I'm asking, is it going to come from my environment? And this is so huge because some of us are, are waiting for help for our situation from our environment. If my husband would just get his act together, if my job would just give me a promotion, if I could just get the, the right combination of things to, to, to fall in place for my life, then I know I'd be able to reach my potential. And the psalmist says, is it going to come from my environment? And he says, no, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Listen, he's saying my environment is not big enough to help me. My husband getting his act straight, my wife getting her act straight, that's not big enough to help me. My job giving me a promotion is not big enough to help me. If I want real help, I'm going to have to get it from somebody who created the heaven and earth and who put me together piece by piece and understands how I'm put together. So I'm going to do this. I'm I'm already in overtime. But if you're taking notes and you struggle with resilience, right, in these next couple minutes, I'm going to give you a quick run through of scriptures the Bible gives us to combat these things. When we get down on ourselves, I want you to remember these things. I want you to remember that I don't get to determine my value God determines my value. Go, when, you, when you experience this, go to Matthew chapter 10 and read about how God keeps track of the hairs on your head and how he understands when a sparrow falls from the sky. Then go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 8 through 10. And we'll put these scriptures on Facebook later if you want to go back and look at them and read how the apostle Paul says that when we are weak, we are strong because God is inside us and people can see that it is not us that's doing something, it's God helping us. The people will know that you're reaching for help for something bigger than you because they'll know that what you're going through, you would not be able to survive it if God was not helping you out. And then when we catastrophize and we go to worst, ca- worst case scenario thinking, I want you to go to Romans eight one and remember that the worst case is off the table because the Bible tells us that there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So that means that no matter what happens to you, the worst case scenario is off the table. There is absolutely no way that you can lose the love of Christ. And then I want you to skip forward twenty seven verses and go to Romans eight twenty eight where the Bible says that God works all things together for good to those who believe uh, to those who are called according to His purpose. It does not say that God takes bad things and waves a magic wand over them and makes them good. It's saying that God can take bad things and make them building blocks to build something good, right? And then go to Jeremiah 29 11 and, 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 and ground yourself in the reality that God has plans for you that nobody else knows, but they are plans for your future and they're not plans for destruction. God wants to help you. He wants to take you somewhere, and then when we're tempted to forfeit new opportunities, I want you to go read 2 Corinthians chapter four verses seven through nine and read where Paul says, we have this trust, treasure in earthen vessels. Why? So that the excellency of Christ would shine through us. So that, he, he's saying, listen, I want, I want people to understand. I'm a, I, I'm a cracked pot. People can look at me and then know I'm a cracked crape, Clay pot. I'm, I'm Tupperware. I'm not fine china. I'm 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 the I'm I'm just the, the stuff you use to to put leftovers in. I'm not anything special. But when people recognize there's something special inside the leftover dish, they know that there's something going on. And I'm just saying the excellency of Christ is what comes out. And I can be Tupperware, but I can do something special. Right. Let me just take this last minute, I just wanna share one last thing with you. I wanna take you back to Moses' calling. You remember what, the, remember what God said? He said, I want you to take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. What does that mean? Holy means, it means special, it means reserved, it means set apart. And then he says, Moses, I'm calling you, I'm sending you. It's basically saying, Moses, you're a special person. Well, Moses had grown up in the palace of the Pharaoh. Moses had been special places. He'd been on beautiful marble stone floors. He, he had been in the huge places with the huge doors and the, the fine, the, 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 the gold and the silver and the, and all the appointments of living in the Pharaoh's palace. He knew what a special place looked like and he had met special people in the house of Pharaoh and I just can't help but think that when God came to him in the middle of this burning bush in the middle of the arid desert and he's standing there next to a bunch of stinky sheep and goats and God says, this is a special place. I got a hunch that most Moses is saying, I have been special places and this is not a special place. And I have met special people and I am not a special person. But listen to me, I'm talking to some people who've been listening to this series and you've heard a little bit about character traits, about humility and responsibility and things that all of us struggle with. Read that, A-L-L, all of us struggle with. You came to this series and you thought, I'm just not there. I'm not quite where I need to be. But what this is, is holy ground. Because God has come to you and said, this is a special place now. I'm, I'm talking to you it's time to get up quit quitting quit moving back quit isolating quit saying there's no point let's do some business let's get let's start moving towards your destiny and towards the goal that i've always had for you let's do something let's let's show up and let's do something listen when god calls you to training camp you say yes you say yes father we love you so much and we thank you for the fact that you can use tupperware And we ask you that you would send us out from this place, energized, ready to take on the opportunities that you've placed for us. Father, to the extent that you can, clear the way of setbacks, but when we hit a setback, we're gonna trust you. And we're gonna say, you're still there. You're gonna lead us through because you're a good God. Thank you for your love. Dismiss us with your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning.